Our text for today comes from Acts uh, chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and, and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught uh, great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit proceeded, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts by the elders, to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Uh, Ragbri starts today. Is anybody aware of this? Do I have any bike riders? Uh, my father-in-law's here, so I have to do this. Is there any other bike riders here other than me and him? Yeah, <laughs> just one, and we ride bikes together too, so that's how it goes. So Ragbri starts this week. Uh, today, actually, uh, for the uninitiated, Ragbri stands for the Register's Annual Great Bike Ride Across Iowa. I think that I got that acrostic. Correct. It is both the largest and longest bike ride uh, in the world. So uh, I've had the pleasure of completing You don't need to clap for it, please. Uh, uh, I've had the pleasure of completing it twice, uh, doing partial days and weeks and things at different times. Um, but uh, every time when Ragbri starts and I'm not on it, I feel a little sad. There's a, there's a little bit of a sadness in my heart. So... Um, you're going to have to contend with that today, all right? It's a lack of, there's a lack of bike riding in my life, and we're hoping it doesn't bleed over into the message today. But, uh, but uh, Ragbri is this event where you sleep over in different cities in Iowa, and it takes a different path every year, but you go through all of these different cities, and what you realize when you're on Ragbri is that every city that you drive th- or ride your bike through has a different flavor. It has a different feel about it. And though all of the towns in Iowa tend to be small, and many people who don't live in Iowa would tend to tell us that Iowa doesn't really have any cities, quote-unquote, in comparison to other states and other places in the United States, when you are on Ragbri, what you quickly realize is that we do, and that they have these kind of different flavors. Uh, We rode through Orange City, which is in the north west of the state of Iowa. Are any of you familiar with Orange City? It's like the smaller Pella because it's all Dutch and so people come out in like Dutch clothing and wooden clogs and things of that nature when you drive through it which is very interesting. Um, We also uh, last year I did a half a day of Ragbri and we rode through Riverside, Iowa. Does anybody know where Riverside, Iowa is? Just south of Iowa City Uh, and they have a claim to fame and I think we have a picture up that is they are where supposedly the fictional Captain Kirk is going to be born 
in the year 2228. So they have that to look forward to. When I, when I rode my bike through Rag, it looks like a headstone, doesn't it? Uh, he, he doesn't die for like 300 more years. Uh, when, when you ride through this town, everybody comes out in like Star Trek apparel. Like the whole town has their Trekkies apparently here in this place. It's very strange. It's a very strange thing riding your bike through the state of Iowa. But the point of all of this is that every city, every community has its own culture, its own flavor. And spiritually speaking, every city also has its own difficulties and struggles and strongholds, right? We know this to be true. And in the scriptures, particularly in the, particularly in the New Testament, cities take on this massive amount of importance to the spread of the message of Jesus around the world. Cities become this incredibly important, these incredibly important and pivotal places as the message of Jesus spreads out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Part of the reason for this is that during the time when the gospel was first spreading, uh, the Emperor Augustine had just finished a massive renovation of the Roman road system in the world. Up until this point, this, uh, the point at which the Apostle Paul particularly is taking the message of Jesus around the world, there is, had, had never up until that point been as uh, accessible or as safe of a road system in the world. And so the message moves from city to city to city. The, the Roman road system was like the interstate of this day, connecting the major cities of the Mediterranean and European world. But also, cities were important in the New Testament and are important today because they're centers for people, for culture, for commerce, for religion. And it makes perfect sense that the message of Jesus would spread primarily in and through these, this interconnected of cities in the Greco-Roman world. I read one scholar this week that said something like 90% of the Christians in the first 200 years of the church were, to, were Christians who were found in cities, not in rural areas, which is not to, deg uh, to de not degradate, but to speak poorly of anyone here who lives on an acreage. I wish I lived on an acreage sometimes and I could have a horse. No, I don't. I don't want a horse. Um, but I, I would have enough room to send my kids outside and they would have no excuse to say that they were bored. That's what it, really what I want. Uh, but, uh, but the vast majority of the New Testament it, it, it takes place in cities. And we find this to be true in the, in the kind of scope or the, or the uh, curve of the biblical narrative as well. The story that begins with Adam and Eve in a garden ends in Revelation 20 and 21 with God dwelling with his people in a city, in an actual city. God's dwelling place is with his people in a, in a new constructed city. And nearly all the New Testament letters that are written are written not to individual churches or individual people, but to cities. Cities like Corinth and Galatia and Rome, to churches in those cities, actually. And in our day, when we think of the church, we tend to think of it denominationally, right? And so we think of individual churches within individual cities. But in this day, there weren't multiple types of Christians, were there? There was just one type of Christian, which is kind of refreshing, right? And so when, when a letter was written to a city, it was written to all of the Christians that, that lived in that city because there was only one type of Christian. There was, there was only one way to follow Jesus at this point, which, like I said, is very, very refreshing. There wasn't competition amongst churches like there can be in our time, even in all, our small town. 
But for these early churches, cities were these kind of practical centers for the movement of Jesus. People were in close proximity, people were having conversation with one another, and it made complete and utter sense that that's where the movement of Jesus would begin. But when we pick up the story in chapter 11 of the book of Acts, what we find is that the message of Jesus had not gone to very many cities. Functionally speaking, it only existed in Jerusalem at this time. Some people had been scattered, and the text has told us that that is the case. But really, the only city we know about where the, where the message of Jesus has taken up residence is in the city of Jerusalem. It's the headquarters. It's home base for the Jesus movement. It's where all the apostles apparently uh, lived. It's where they thought home base was. But we realize very quickly in chapter 11 of the book of Acts that that is about to change and that this cities are going to become more and more important to the movement of Jesus. And as we, uh, as we see in chapter, if you are with us a few weeks ago, we looked at the stoning of Stephen in chapter 8. Stephen is stoned in the city of Jerusalem, and, and followers of Jesus in that city begin to spread out. They begin to go away from Jerusalem because they were fleeing persecution. They begin to spread out through the Roman road system into the greater Roman world. Uh, most of the, those people who scattered were Jewish, were early Jewish followers of Jesus, and so they went to places and cities where they probably had family or some type of relation, somebody they knew who was also Jewish who could put them up, a house that they could stay at, somewhere they could flee the persecution in Jerusalem. And specifically, the text beginning in chapter 19 of chapter 11 tells us that uh, some of the cities that these, that these early Christians fled to, they fled uh, to the island of Cyprus, they fled to Antioch, uh, and they fled uh, the, um, to, uh, what was the third one? I don't have it in front of me. Phoenicia, there you go. Awesome, thank you. And they, and they fled, I knew there was a third one there, uh, and they fled to Phoenicia. But what's funny about this when you read the text is that it doesn't seem like the leadership of the church had any control of this whatsoever. None. It was like the spread of Christianity was not structured or organized at all. It was a byproduct of persecution. People were running for their lives. And uh, this was not in the plan of the apostles. They did not sit down and create a kind of heat map that said where they were going to go. They, rather, they were rather a bunch of Christians in Jerusalem that went, ah, and took off, right? But notice that even in their fear, right, even in their life for persecution, they carry the message of Jesus with them. They don't stop carrying this life-altering message of Jesus as they go. They carry it with them. They carry the goodness of of the good news of the message of this resurrected Messiah wherever they go, and the message spreads. Because even amidst their flee from persecution, they can't help but share this message. And we get the impression from this text that when the apostles are notified that there are more Christians, there are more disciples of Jesus coming into the fold of the church in Antioch, they are quite surprised by it. In verse 22, it says this, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and so they sent Barnabas to Antioch, right? Like, oh, something's happening in Antioch? Ah, let, let's send Barnabas, right? We, can, we, have to, we have to see what's happening. 
It's probably partially what they were doing. They were looking to see what was going to happen there in that place. And what's so fascinating to me, and what I think is often a pattern in our lives, in, our, in the 21st century world, we very often want to control our lives, don't we? We want to keep everything that is happening to us and around us within our wheelhouse. We want to control it. But how many of us know that very often the control that we try to exert over our lives kind of falls through our fingers like sand when we grasp too tightly? And the story of the early church and the story of the movement of the Spirit in the early church is instructive for us to show us that the message of Jesus, the movement of the Spirit in the world, and I think the way that God works in our own lives cannot be controlled. This doesn't mean that we, this doesn't mean that we should be um, unorganized. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have plans. But it does mean that for, uh, for the follower of Jesus, life should not always be predictable. And it most certainly is not a boring thing. Be- because we see the response of the church to the move of the gospel out into the Roman world— this ability for them not to just control it, because they don't control it, but to simply pay attention and respond. To pay attention to what it is that God is doing through the move of the Spirit in the world in which they occupy, and then to respond to that move by, in this case, sending Barnabas. And so probably one of the best things, and just a quick takeaway from from this portion of the passage, is just to say, what is God doing in your life And how are you responding to that? What is God doing in your life, and how are you responding to that? And have you been surprised recently? If you haven't been surprised recently, you might be grasping your life too tightly. And what God might want to do is take your life like a snow globe and shake it up a little bit and see how you respond. Uh, Anyway, so let's continue. Now, a little background on the city of Antioch, because this is the city we're going to look at closely today. Uh, Up until this point in the story of Acts, what we've been kind of looking at are episodes and characters in the story, but today I actually want to look at this character that is the church in the city of Antioch, because I think it's instructive for us to see what this first real Gentile-leaning church in the, in the whole entirety of the world was like, and then to maybe see, carry out some uh, implications or features of what they were like, and hopefully in, a, in an attempt to be more like them, is what I'm hoping happens today. So that's where we're going. So Antioch was uh, one of the most important cities in the ancient world. It was founded uh, by Seleucus, if you are a uh, Um, If you are a fan of Greek and Roman history, you might know that name. He was a general of Alexander the Great, and uh, he went around founding cities, or destroying cities a lot of the time, but also founding cities, and he named a lot of them after his dad, whose name was Antiochus. So there were actually a lot of cities in the Mediterranean world named Antioch. So don't get confused, but there was a lot of them. But the Antioch that we're talking about today is often referred to in history as Antioch uh, on the Arantes or Syrian Antioch because it was the primary city in Syria. But it was one of the greatest cities in the world at the time. Uh, most writers at that time considered it to be kind of the third biggest city in the world or most important city in the world. First, you had Rome, obviously. Then you had Alexandria. 
named after Alexander the Great, and then you had Antioch. So it's kind of like Chicago, basically. You have, it's not New York, and it's not LA, but it's up there, right? And like any great city, it was a hub. It was a hub of both commerce and religion. Antioch was specifically known within the religious sphere for uh, the cult and temple to Daphne and Apollo. If you're interested in Greek history, you can look that up. It's kind of interesting in both interesting and depressing, uh, like most Greek myths are, um, but you can look that up on your own time. Uh, but what's important for us to understand today was that Antioch was a metropolitan place. It was a, it was a melting pot. It was a place where many people came through, where many ideas crashed into each other, where many different ethnic groups and many different languages and many different uh, religious people with different religious orientations kind of came together into this one place. Scholars tell us that probably about 10% of the population in Antioch was Jewish, were Hellenistic Jews at the time, which probably goes to why it was one of the first cities that uh, Jews fleeing Jerusalem went to, is because there was a large number of them, and it was kind of outside, it was outside the region of Judea. So it was kind of out, it was one of the major cities outside the grasp of the Sanhedrin. So it was someplace they could go away and be safe. But that still leaves 90% of the population to be Gentile, to be non-Jewish. And while it was culturally diverse and it was religiously diverse, it also made a kind of a perfect place for this spreading of the good news about Jesus. Because from the perspective of the scriptures, that diversity that existed in Antioch was not a, a hindrance or a barrier to the message of Jesus, but was rather uh, an advantage. And, and scholars tell us this. The sociologist Rodney Snark, commenting on the value that Christianity held with the, in diverse cultures, says this. He says, in my judgment, a major way in which Christianity served as a, revol uh, as a rev revitalization movement within the empire was in offering a coherent culture that was entirely stripped of ethnicity. All were welcome without need to dispense with ethnic ties. In this way, Christianity first evaded and then overwhelmed the ethnic barrier that had prevented Judaism from serving as the basis for this revitalization. So what Stark says here is that for those, these early Christians, and specifically as the message of Jesus begins to move outside of its Jewish roots into the Gentile world, that it immediately created a kind of trans-ethnic group or culture or religion. Up until this point in the world, there was no such thing as a trans-ethnic religion, by and large. But Christianity becomes this place, this safe haven, if you will, for all peoples, from all different ethnic, cultural, language, walks of life. They are all invited in under the umbrella of the person of Jesus. And this was a very attractive thing in the first century world. Because the first century world was kind of chopped up. Everybody was segmented. Everybody was separated. But it, under the heading of Jesus, everyone is allowed to come underneath. And so uh, we know that in Antioch at this time, there were many what, what were referred to as God-fearers, were Gentile people who saw Judaism and saw something attractive about that one God of Israel. And so they went to, the, they were kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch that we saw a few weeks ago, the, who uh, go to Jerusalem to try to worship God, but couldn't worship God fully. And when the Christians come on the scene and they say, Jesus is Lord, you can worship this God fully in the person of Jesus, that's very attractive to these Gentile God-fearers. 
And so immediately you have this kind of diverse set of people arising in Antioch. And this is exactly what happened. Antioch became the, the, I would argue, the most important city for the movement of Christianity in the early church. People came into the church in droves. It became this well-established city where, uh, where, there were large, where the church was large and it was influential. It had cultural uh, cachet, where it sent missionaries out, where it um, pooled money, where it did all of these things. Antioch became just a, a cultural hub for Christianity in the world. And in the middle of this metropolitan city, in the middle of all of this diverse people and thoughts and ideas, Christianity revolutionized this city. It changed everything. And Antioch then becomes this pivotal place in the New Testament. And I was having a conversation with Ashley about it, which is fascinating, because we know that Antioch served this role from history. And I said to her the other day, why is there no letters to the church at Antioch, really? There's reference to Antioch, but there's Paul never writes a letter to Antioch. We don't really have any other, uh, that much of a biblical witness of Antioch. <laughs> That's my child. Don't worry about it. Uh, we don't have a biblical witness about the city of Antioch, but, but we do have all of these stories in the, in the book of Acts about the, the quality of the people in Antioch, the, the, the way in which they lived their lives, and, and how they influenced the, the vast majority of the world. And so this morning, what I want to do is just draw out four implications from the text, four uh, things that this passage tells us this church was like in order to see them as a kind of, um, as, and see them as a kind of example to us of what a church should be. Because in truth, the first church that for us would look anything like an actual church happened at Antioch. The first Christians who were, more, who were Jewish and living in Jerusalem, probably what the, the way in which they worshipped the resurrected Messiah really wouldn't look familiar to us in any way, shape, or form. We wouldn't really understand it. They met on Saturdays. They, they went to the temple. They observed food laws. They did all of these types of things. But in, but in Antioch, the question begins to arise, how, to, how do Gentiles follow Jesus, and how should that function? And so the church, as we would see it and understand it, as it would be coherent to us, begins to rise in that place. And so I think it has something to say to us about the way we should live our corporate lives as Jesus followers in Cedar Falls, Iowa. So I just want to draw out a few implications from this text in the time we have remaining this morning, and then um, we can go. How's that sound? Good, good, good. So implication number one from the text, Antioch was a church of ordinary people doing extraordinary kingdom stuff. I don't like ending a sentence with the word stuff, but it felt right to me. So in uh, verse 22 of chapter 11, it says this, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw that the grace of God, what the grace of God had done, and he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. One of, if not the greatest, most influential churches in the Roman world was planted and maintained primarily by people whose names we do not know. We don't know who these people are. This church was not started by an apostle. Paul or Saul did not go there. Barnabas, the great apostle, uh, the great, um, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but apostle of the early church, goes to this place. He doesn't start it. He just kind of shows up and helps to kind of organize things. This church was started by ordinary folks, 
ordinary people. And sometimes we get the idea from Scripture that it is the super-apostles who are supposed to be doing the work of God in the world. But that is not the case. The greatest, the greatest church in the, for the first, really, 800 years of the church was begun by ordinary people, normal people, empowered by God's Spirit to do extraordinary things. These people who were running, literally running for their lives were able, even amidst the fear, I'm sure, that was involved in that process, to carry the message of Jesus in such a way that it transformed the entirety of this metropolitan city called Antioch. And for us, the question is, what does God want to do through us as ordinary people? We are all ordinary, right? In our own, in our own special way. I am a four on the Enneagram. We're going to look at the Enneagram a little bit more this fall, but the four uh, is technically called the romantic. If you're unfamiliar with the Enneagram, it's a a personality assessment that has some spiritual implications as well. And I'm a four on the Enneagram, which is, like I said, the romantic. It's mostly the type of person who um, thinks they should be really special and really important. Which, surprise, surprise, I went into a job where people have to listen to me talk once a week. Um, but, uh, but I want to see myself as spectacular, right? This is part of what fours do. This is part of our, the cross that we bear. But the reality of my life and the reality of, I think, most of our lives is that um, what we do matters, but we are not the president, right? History books will not record our names, in any significant way. The chances are, um, if the world continues for another 250 years, many of us will have made a significant contribution to the world, but we will be lost in some sense to history. But the question is, will we do things in this life of value? The church at Antioch was started by people whose names we have never met, or never, never heard, but their impact on the world is immeasurable. Immeasurable. What are you working towards in your life? Are you working to have an immeasurable impact, or are you working to have your name remembered? I believe in some real sense that Christians are people who work tirelessly to build the kingdom of God not so that they can have their name etched in any type of stone, but rather that, that God's name might be glorified and that the world might be transformed through our efforts and the praise we receive is only praise from a loving God. There's real significance in that, and it is the exact opposite of Instagram culture. It really is. It really is. It is the exact opposite of the... Uh, I've said a few times, but the, all the, my kids come home from school and they say, will I ever be able to be on TV? And I say, why do you want to be on TV? And they said, because you f- if you're on TV, you're famous. Have you ever been on TV? Have you ever been famous? And I say, we don't want to be famous. If you end up on TV, whatever, right? There's, you know, if you really want to be on TV, like go to the cable access, you can do, <laughs> you can do the, Uh, Wayne's World thing if you want, but uh, we don't want to be famous. We want to be significant, right? 
We want to be significant in the kingdom of God, but we don't want our names up in lights. And in a world that is, like, driven towards fame, I think this is a really important corrective. That the church at Antioch were ordinary people doing extraordinary things for the kingdom of God, and their names are not remembered. And the church in our day are supposed to be a people called to do ordinary things. Or, sorry, so called to be ordinary people who do extraordinary things to build the kingdom of God. We want to be normal people, empowered by God's Spirit, who do extraordinary things. And whether our names are remembered or not in that process, is, it's insignificant. So that's observation number one. Observation number two. Antioch was a church of radical generosity in service to the poor. This is what they were. The first major non-Jewish church in the Roman world was uh, radically generous and served the poor. We, in verse 27, we pick up and it says, During this time, some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread all over the Roman world. The disciples, um, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Now, we know in history that this is an actual thing that took place. There was a grain shortage that took place in the Mediterranean world at the time because in the year 45, there was a hundred years flood in Egypt. Egypt was the California of that part of the world. So uh, if there was a hundred year flood, it flooded all the grain fields and there was a lack of grain for numerous years. And they used to store grain every year. So one year of missing grain meant that there was going to be a lack of grain in a couple of years. Does this make sense? So there was a grain shortage in, the, in that part of the world, excuse me, from the years uh, 8046 to about 8048. So we know this to be true. But Antioch being made aware of this reality by Jesus, by uh, the Holy Spirit, takes special care, specifically for the church, right? Notice that they wanted to take care of their brothers and sisters. But this, this habit of caring for those who are, um, who are in need becomes a hallmark of this church. It actually becomes a hallmark of the church globally, and we know this for a fact. Uh, Paul begins, this seems to set off something for Paul, and he begins, as he goes on his missionary journey, often he was taking up offerings for chur other churches and other people who were in need. He does this more than once, uh, and he talks about it in some of, his, uh, some, of, some of his epistles, some of his letters. But this, this care that the early church, particularly the Antioch church, displays for the wider body of Christ is so instructive of the, the way and the nature of their lives and the way that this was so impactful in the world. Again, the sociologist Rodney Stark talking about the significant way that the Christ, early Christian communities cared for, for each other and for the poor says this, Christianity revitalized life in Gre Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with uh, epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services, which is fascinating, right? The church is a place 
where we put on display the love of God through practical acts of service, like the allevi alleviation of poverty, like, the ca like care for people who are sick, like care for people who are disenfranchised and put out. This is what the church is, and this is what the church has always been. High on the priority list of the, of the responsibilities of the church is to put on display the love of God by caring for the least of these. And so if at any point what we do becomes just a gathering together without the care component, we've missed the mark. The, uh, the church at Antioch understood that care for the poor, that thinking about those who are, who are disenfranchised and, um, and unable to uh, care for themselves, that uh, justice in the world is something that Christians are called to by God to think about and to work towards. So that's observation number two. Observation number three, Antioch was a church that was committed to furthering the message of Jesus by sending people out on mission. We read about Barnabas and Saul in this passage. Barnabas is sent to Antioch, and then he goes to Tarsus, because remember, that's where Saul, later Paul, the apostle Paul, was living. And he goes to Tarsus, and he gets Saul, and he brings him to Antioch. And it's, the wording in the passage would lead you to believe that Barnabas had to do a little arm twisting, even, to get Saul there. So he brings him there, and they teach for a year. This is where the Apostle Paul cut his teeth in ministry, basically. Under the leadership of Barnabas, he learns how to minister to, the, to Gentiles. That's, this is what he does. Uh, this is probably where Paul begins to realize, like, I don't think these Gentiles need to follow the food laws, and I don't think they need to be circumcised, and I don't think they need to do some of these things. And then he goes to Jerusalem later, and they have a conversation about it. But um, this is where Paul and Barnabas really jo are joined together in ministry, and do the work of the ministry. But this is also the place from which Paul is sent out, and Barnabas are sent out as missionaries. In chapter 13 of the book of Acts, just a few pages over, we read this about this thing that happened in the city of Antioch. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, uh, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them, and they sent them out. There you go. Antioch becomes the home base for the sending of Paul on all of his missionary journeys in the world. It, it becomes the church that he comes back to after he's done with his missionary journeys to either relax or recuperate or do whatever it was that you do when you're a super apostle. I don't know. <laughs> Swim. Uh, but Antioch becomes the place that both empowered him for ministry and was his home base when he came back. Notice that Paul didn't stand up one day and go, hey guys, guess what? Missionary. Let's go. Right? They were praying together as a community. They discerned together that God wanted something from Paul and Barnabas, and so they, they lay their hands on them and they send them out. This was a process that was initiated in community through prayer, and it was a process that was sustained as a community through prayer, as this church at Antioch. Them sending them out means most certainly that they financially supported them, right? But notice that they were a part of the community for well over a year before this took place. 
It was this process of together discerning what the will of God is and then participating with it through the sending of Paul and Barnabas on these missionary journeys. And without the church at Antioch, we have no Apostle Paul. We have no Apostle Paul. Without the community coming around, praying together, discerning what it is that God had for him, we don't know what he did. Maybe he would have just stayed in Antioch and taught, which would have been fine, but it was the Spirit moving through the church that empowers Paul to go out. It is not Paul's call alone. Notice that. It's important. Because God doesn't just speak to you primarily. He does, and that's important. But in the New Testament, the primary way that God speaks is through his people. I said it two weeks ago, or last week, and I'll say it again. It is absolutely true. So anything you hear God say to you needs to be confirmed by other people. Rant over. That's not in my notes. Um, the point of this is that Antioch was a missionary sending church. And so if in the DNA of Antioch was a church that sent people on mission out into the world. And so in our DNA should be a desire to send people on mission. So a healthy church should be a church that is kicking people, sending people away, right? Not kicking people out. That's not healthy. But should be actually sending people away. People should be coming in and going out, right? This is what a healthy church is. This is what a healthy church is. It's a sending church. All right, we got to get going. So uh, final point, point number four, fourth observation from the text. Antioch was a church where diverse people with diverse opinions gathered under the name of Jesus. We've talked about this a little bit, but I think it's really important. Antioch is where the faith first became truly multicultural. It's where this first happened. And it is one of the greatest hallmarks of the faith of Jesus, to, of the, the, the way of Jesus today. The face of Christianity is a global face. I say this often. You know, that, you know the uh, sociologists tell us the average Christian in the world right now, if you were to take, say, what's the, take all of the Christians in the world, you were to add them up, and you would say, what's the average Christian look like? Right? It's, this is things that people who work at colleges do. Uh, that person would be under 18, would be brown-skinned, and would be a woman, and probably live in the global south. This, that's the average face of a Christian in the world today. We don't see that because of where we live all the time, but it's true. And the, the face of Christianity is a multicultural face. Read again the end of the story in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. Around the table of God are people from every tribe and every nation, speaking every language under the sun. And in the church of Antioch, we see a glimpse of this. We see a glimpse of a church that is multicultural, that is multifaceted, that is multi-ethnic, that is uh, multi—what's another one, right? There you go. I think I said that, but it's okay. Uh, Christianity is a pan-social, pan-national movement of different people, different cultures— coming from different religions, all under the banner of the name of Jesus. And this is what makes Christianity beautiful. It is beautiful because of it. Christianity blows the world's paradigms about who can be, work together and who can live together and who can be together up. And so what this tells us as followers of Jesus in our day 
that like the church at Antioch, we should be diverse. Now I just want you to look around for a minute. Rant over. Uh, no, it's not a rant. It's just a byproduct of the fact that the, the, within this room, the, though we are tend to be ethnically homogenous to a certain extent, within this room there are different opinions. There are different beliefs. There are different political orientations. Right? And under the banner or the name of Jesus, all of those things should be able to reside. Right? There should be difference. There can be difference in a church like this. All of those differences can and should be submitted to the will in the name of Jesus, and they should all be governed by love. But under the name of Jesus, under the banner of Jesus, difference can be maintained. Now, when we come to Jesus, are we called to follow him in certain ways? Yes. Are we called to lay down some of our preconceived notions? Yes. Are we called to take up some of the some of the hallmarks of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Absolutely. But, but notice, this does not nullify all difference. It does not nullify all difference. The ability to be a follower of Jesus is to be able to maintain community through or over difference, over disagreement even, because this is what the church is. Because if the name of Jesus is not a name that unifies people across cultural boundaries, across language boundaries, across ethnic boundaries, across political boundaries even at times, then it's not a big enough name, right? Because if any of those things that you pay allegiance to don't, are not subsumed under the name of Jesus, then you've put them over the name of Jesus. And so under that name, all, under the name of Jesus, all of our other allegiances need to fall into line. I'll preach about this for three weeks on politics in, t in September, so come back. Uh, tell your friends, right? I know it's summer and we're a little low today, but tell your friends, all right? So here's the thing, and I'm done here. The church at Antioch is, and I encourage you, open, uh, open the book of Acts this week and read through this and see if you can pull anything out, because there's a lot of other really cool stuff. The first, the first time people were called Christians was in Antioch, right? It's a beautiful thing. But all of this is to say that when we read the scriptures, we need to allow it to uh, stand in front of us like a mirror. And when I read the story of the church at Antioch, what I read is, for, well, at least for me, is a kind of conviction to bring out of my heart this desire to be more like that, to pay attention to the Spirit, to be a person who uh, leans into God's mission in the world, to be a person who attempts to serve, to be, to be a person who uh, kind of pushes away my own desire for recognition, but rather works for the kingdom. All of these things kind of come up in my heart, and I think they should come up in our church's heart as well. Because when we read about a church like this, what we realize is that that's a church that we want to be like. And we identify with the fact that, you know, we don't do everything perfect and not everything's always great and all of those things, right? We live in, a, we live in this world that is in, imperfect and impartial. But we should be encouraged, I think, by the reality of what God did here and the reality of what he wants to do in us and through us and through our community. And so I'd encourage you today and this week coming up into the fall, I do think God wants to do something in our community. 
And I do think he will do things that surprise us in some ways. I do think he will do things that we are not prepared for and that we need to adjust to even. But that's all okay. Because as we follow the way of Jesus together as a community, and as we pursue uh, his way and his purposes and his kingdom, there will inevitably be things that will come up and will occur that will, uh, that will throw us off course, but will ultimately be the right thing. And so my encouragement today to you, my final encouragement as we pray, is just that you would, with me, lean into those things. The summer is a quiet time in the Cedar Valley. It naturally is, and that's okay. But as we, as we lean into the fall, I just want you to be praying both what role God has you to play in his kingdom, as well as what he might be speaking to you or through you for the church, because that's how it works as we live in community. So that's my application for today. Let's pray together as we leave that God would help us to pay attention to the, to the move of the Spirit in our midst, and that he'd help us to be like uh, the church at Antioch. Father, we love you, and we pray that you would um, move us today, that you would open our eyes to the work of the Spirit in our midst, that you would uh, make us alive to what you are doing in the world, that you would make us a church, God, that looks like this church, this church in Antioch, a church that was diverse, a church that was on mission, a church that served the poor, a church of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Would you allow us to be a church like that? I pray for every individual in this place, whatever their giftings, whatever their, uh, whatever their abilities, God, that they would, uh, they would lean in in this next season of their life into how to put those to use for your kingdom and for the advancement of your message, this message of Jesus. And so, God, today, we thank you for gathering us together. We thank you for uh, inspiring our hearts, God. And we pray that as we go this week, you would continue to help us to be a people who pay attention to the move of the Spirit. Help us to be surprised by what it is you do this week. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. All right, go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ.